Welcome. Uh, welcome back to the study. Uh, we're uh, currently studying the book of Hebrews and we saw in the first part of the letter that in verses one through three, we covered that and we saw how that um, Jesus has been presented as God. So the Hebrews letter was written to believers who were predominantly Hebrew. And now there's a transition between the old way of worshiping, Old Testament, and the new way of worshiping, New Testament. So something has changed. A, a testament has come into effect and a testament's come into effect after death. So after the Lord's death, his new testament, uh, his new will and testament has come into effect. That's where we get the term New Testament. So now there needs to be some instruction. Again, I want to stress how that in their day, Jesus was someone that they knew. A lot of these people knew him personally prior to his earthly ministry. And uh, it was revealed to them after uh, John the Baptist that this is the Son of God. So that's a huge revelation uh, from Jesus, the guy that I went to school with, to now Jesus, the God of the universe. So they needed to understand the significance, not so much of the fact that he is God, but what it is that he accomplished and how what his role is or was in the transition from the old economy of worship to the new economy of worship. So that's the the background for this letter and what it's accomplishing. So um, the first part of the letter, they established that yes, Jesus of Nazareth is God. Now we see um, them going into further um, explanation to show that not only is Jesus God, but he has accomplished things that are better than the things that we had in the past. So they needed that because they were going through a lot of persecution. People were alienating them because they were no longer uh, a part of the temple worship. Uh, a lot of people saw them as abandoning their faith, you know, their culture. So this new way that it was, you know, turning the world upside down that they were being a part of and they needed comfort. They needed understanding and there's never a time when that's needed, that God will not provide that. And he'll do it in uh, many different ways. He'll do it personally. He can do it corporately. He can do it in any way he would like, but he's always going to comfort his people. So now we come to the part of this letter that presents a series of truths uh, needed by the Hebrew believers that address some of the unique challenges that apply to them as well as to us for different reasons, but with the same results. In verses 1 through 3, the writer was clearly establishing Jesus as God. Uh, he is the promised one, and now the writer will go into more detail to support this fact. So in support of um, these facts, we start with uh, this chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, in the rest of this chapter, we'll be seeing Jesus compared to angels. That's what this chapter is known for. A lot of people are very familiar with that. Nowhere in the Bible uh, 
does it go into this much detail about angels, about their role, their place, and their function? So that makes this a very um, unique passage. So we're getting much more revelation from God about angels here than anywhere else. Um, we have to understand to the Hebrews, angels were as commonly associated with worship as the tabernacle, the temple, the ark. All of these things were integrated into their very culture. Can you imagine um, God being integrated into your culture? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine now because our culture is so far away from God. Uh, it's so far the other direction that it's just difficult to fathom. But God set apart the the nation Israel for a purpose to manifest himself to them, to witness to them and through them and do all those things that now we see him doing through the church. So. um Angels had a very prominent role in that culture, and they were often emissaries of God in his communication to the fathers and to the prophets. Um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, particularly uh, before they became a nation, angels would appear and they would uh, have messages from God to individuals. So there's lots of occasions and accounts of, of that happening. So this was, this is very common to, um, and a very much a part of the history of the nation Israel. Now, angels are exclusive to the nation Israel. I want to repeat that they are exclusive to the nation Israel in this type of ministry. Um, and they're a part of an exclusive relationship of being God's chosen people and they had this exclusive ministry or manifestation of an angel ministry. So there's a lot of people that seem to think that they see angels today and uh, that's just not the case. This was a part of the witness and the testimony that set them apart, that made them unique, much like the Shekinah glory that God manifested of himself. These are things that are unique to the nation Israel, and they were used to set these people apart from everyone else, give them a witness and a testimony to the world. And that's exactly what uh, they were called to do. We, we should, when we study about the nation Israel and their culture, we should see a lot of parallels between the church because uh, the Bible says that for now, the Jews have been set aside so that we the church could be grafted in. Uh, so that's, we should see a lot of parallels there. And, uh, but one of those parallels is not angel ministry, because again, that was part of that old economy that uh, they're now moving away from. Now that Jesus has come, they're to move away from that old economy into a new economy. And it's better. You know, they shouldn't look back and go, well, we had angels. Well, you have Jesus now, and Jesus is better. And that's a good way to surmise the what uh, the letter of Hebrews is saying. It's saying that Jesus is better. Okay. Now, now they're they're um, to move away from all the uh, temple types and patterns 
uh, and see Jesus, the fulfillment of all things. Now, when I say types and patterns, angels were literally sewn into the fabric of the curtains that were part of the uh, tabernacle. So the outside, it was all hairy and it looked like, you know, a big hairy tent. But on the inside, they had multiple layers of curtains and they were very ornate and they literally had angels stitched into um, images of angels stitched into the pattern. So you see, this is when we say types and patterns, it's quite literally that. But now, like I said, they have to move away from that and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things that they were given. So the writer now goes into detail to clarify the true ministry of angels as compared to the uh, ministry of Jesus. So we today need clarification about angels. People get very caught up in these things surrounding um, Jesus, uh, all the things that are uh, about surrounding him, the that they don't even see Jesus. You know, they get caught up into the spiritual things and, you know, they think, oh, that's amazing. Well, it is amazing because he's God. Everything about him and around him is going to be amazing. Uh, but we don't need to uh, miss the forest for the trees. So, you know, people get caught up in the symbols and the types and they can miss the very joy of who and what these things represent. And that's what this writer is facing now is to show them that there's a greater blessing in the fulfillment of what these types and symbols represent. And don't fall into the trap of getting distracted by all the glory around Jesus and not see him. You know, that's what this chapter is talking about. So I'm going to read here in verse four. It says, being made, speaking of Jesus, we, we first we established in verse one through three that he is God. So we're talking about the Lord Jesus being made so much better than the angels. So right away, we see a contrast being made between Jesus and the angels. So that you're going to see that as a pattern going through this book that we're going to establish who Jesus is and how that he has fulfilled uh, all the things that are represented in the old economy of worship. So Jesus is better than the angels. Just we're going to start just right out with that. He's look, guys, everything you associate with the angels, Jesus is better. Jesus and uh, the relationship we have to him and through him is better, better than anything that you can compare to it. And if you don't see Jesus as better than something else or anything else, then you really don't know Jesus the way you should. That's the point that's being made here is that we in our lives must see Jesus as better. If we don't see Jesus as better, then we're going to fall into a trap. So whenever you face any kind of challenge, any type of um, trial that might come upon you and your fears are bubbling up and they're making you go, oh my goodness, and you start playing this game called what if and what if this happens and what if that happens and 
this and the other, stop yourself and say, Jesus is better. Whatever it is that you think is going to overwhelm you, you know, whatever Red Sea that's in front of you, just remind yourself, Jesus is better because he is. He's over all things. He created all things. So there's nothing that you can create in your heart and mind that's bigger or better than Jesus. It's just that simple. And it's, you know, we, we get caught up in the complicated things of life, but it's really, faith is really simple. And here it is right here. They're presenting Jesus being so much better than, than the angels. So we see that he is better. And we need to remember that. That's a nice little uh, phrase to keep in your heart and mind. <clears throat> so speaking of the angels here, you know, angelology is a fascinating study. Uh, but it's just not the focus of this lesson. So <clears throat> I'm not going to go into depth into angelology. I mean, I would like to because I've enjoyed the study of angels and all the things that it reveals about God and his order, his structure. And it actually reveals a lot of things about us as uh, human beings when you study angels. But I'm just going to just kind of touch on it and uh, as it relates to this chapter so that we don't get off track. Because the focus here is Jesus and I want to make sure that we get as much Jesus Christ um, before us as possible because... That's who we love, and I know that that's who makes your heart race. Uh, so let's keep the focus on him. So I will say that angels are not shrouded in mystery, you know. Um, they were not these, uh, they were not to these Hebrews be believers. I mean, they knew a lot about angels. Uh, the author of this letter, they knew about angels because they had a prominent ministry in the nation uh, the source the source of information for angels is always scripture if you go beyond scripture then you are in never never land you know you're in great danger so <clears throat> there's a, a plethora of information about angels in scripture so if you want to study that stay within the confines of what god has revealed to us about angels and you'll be a lot safer um, the, the author never goes to any extra biblical material to get his facts. You know, his facts are always in reference to scripture. Um, Jesus always referenced scripture. Whenever somebody approached him with a question, he says, well, this is what the word says, you know, so we need to follow that same pattern of behavior and stick to the scriptures so that we don't get, um, off track. So yeah, we do well to follow that same pattern. So first, the comparison is made as it relates to their relation to the Godhead. So we're going to see a comparison made of angels to the Godhead. It says, as he, that's Christ, hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All right, so there we go. We're going to start off with the fact that the... The, the inheritance of the Lord Jesus is greater. It shows his um, 
excellency and superior superiority, excuse me, over the level of an angel. It says, now an heir is defined as a person who has a legal title to a property or rank of another associated with death. So in Jesus's death, he inherited something. Okay. He inherited a rank. He inherited a legal entitlement to property. Well, the property inherited, that was us. You know, all of the people that he redeemed, that the father gave to him, uh, all of creation, um, says he's been exhausted through the heaven. So, <clears throat> so that's, that's where it says that he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than angels. So you say, well, how has Jesus obtained a more excellent name? In verse five, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So first we see the first part of verse five, it says, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. You can see that in Psalm 2. Um, that was a prophecy of that coming, of that proclamation coming. There's uh, multiple times that God announced who Jesus was before other people. Uh, this verse uh, being one of them when he was uh, baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, this is my son whom I'm, whom. Thou art my son whom I'm, I am well pleased. So it was announced several times. Peter said, you know, when he when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think that I am? Peter says, well, you're the son of God. So verses one through three established this. And now this uh, writer is tying that up and saying, okay, so now that we know he's God, it's clear that he's above the angels. So that's, that's being established here. But there's much more here than that. By the writer starting to speak of his inheritance, and we know that an inheritance is associated with death. The writer has very subtly pointed us back to the significance, not only of his life and his ministry, but the role that his death has played in, in elevating him to this very high place, right? So we have the father announcing that this is my son. We have the fact that there's an inheritance that has been obtained, right? And that it's above the angels, which the angels are associated with the angelic ministry and all those things that are heavenly. So right here, if we went no further than this, it's been established that Jesus is not only God, but he's above everything heavenly. Okay. That's been clearly established just by these first few verses. Um, but we're going to take a little detour because I believe the writer wants us to take this detour because in the second part of verse five, it says he references a verse. I will be to him a father 
and he shall be to me a son. This is a very specific reference that Hebrew believers would have been taught since they were children. It's a very specific specific biblical reference that I would like to look at look at more uh, thoroughly with you so that you can we can be like these Hebrew believers and get the impact of what's actually being written here. So to do that, we're going to have to turn to 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to see something that was prophesied that at the time it had a, uh, what you would call a local prophecy. You know, it spoke directly into the life of David. But I believe that David was able to see that this was way larger than just him and his situation. God made him to see far into the future and he was able to see the Lord Jesus in a way that no one else could see at that time that now we can see looking back very clearly. And so uh, I'm going to read all 16 verses and then we'll talk about them individually. And I know this is a kind of a departure from Hebrews, but to understand Hebrews and what's being presented, we have to understand this as well. So this is an account of David wanting to build a temple. They had a tabernacle that they would worship God and approach him, but David wanted to build the temple. And so this is the account of that um, happening. In uh, chapter seven, it says, verse one, and it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. That's a reference to the temple. And those are those curtains I was telling you about. Uh, verse three. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. So he went to the prophet, the representative of God, told him what he wanted to do. And the prophet said, yeah, go ahead and do it. That's If that's what the Lord put on your heart, he hadn't said anything to me to the contrary, so do it. Um, and verse four, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan saying, uh, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shall thou build me a house? Uh, shall thou build me a, a house for me to dwell in? That's a, that's kind of an incredulous question. Uh, verse six, whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I uh, brought you up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in the tabernacle in uh, all places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, I spake, I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel saying why build ye me why build ye not me a house of cedar so basically God is saying I've never asked for you to build me a house I've always ministered to you via tabernacle now understand the tabernacle is a more clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry than the temple is, right? The tabernacle 
moved with them. The tabernacle had around it was covered with uh, animal fur and skins and it and on the outside looked like nothing. But on the inside was full of holy and ornate things. Uh, the tabernacle moved when they moved. Wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them. The tabernacle housed the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. It was all the pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, he's, and God is basically saying, I'm the rest you to be of me a temple. I've always ministered to you through this tabernacle. So verse eight, now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I shall be with thee whithsoever thou wittest, winnest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them uh, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And in verse 11, and since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. So now he's talking about David. He's saying, hey, this is what I told you. You're talking about making me a house, but I told you I'm going to make you a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish thy throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Okay, so we know that the history, right? That David wasn't allowed to build the temple, but his son Solomon was. So clearly the immediate application of this verse is, yeah, this is going to be Solomon. But we now have from the letter to the Hebrews and uh, an expansion of the application of the of this verse. You have what's called a near view that's Solomon. But now Hebrews is giving us a far view uh, explanation because there's more to this than just Solomon that this speaks very specifically of the Lord Jesus. Very specifically. Let's go to verse eight. Now, therefore, so shalt, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. So this is what God is saying to Nathan to tell David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. 
Okay, that presents the Lord Jesus as the shepherd, right? We, we see his ministry as the shepherd. In verse 9, And I was with thee whithsoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of great men that are in the earth. That's true of David, but it's more true of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is far greater than David. His name is far greater than David. His reach, his excellency is even over that of David. So we see the near view application to David, but the far view application to the Lord Jesus. In verse 10, it says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. So here we see that God is going to, through this one, appoint a place of peace. Well, that's clearly the Lord Jesus. We know that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom for the nation Israel, and he's going to put down all the enemies, and they're going to have this thousand years of peace that he's going to reign on the earth. So clearly this is uh, talking about the Lord Jesus. And this would be a great comfort to the Hebrew people saying, wait a minute, you know, not only do we have Jesus, but we have all these things that are associated with Jesus, even greater than David. In verse 11, and, um, and as since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thy enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. So this is this is God telling telling them in Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew writer is referring back to the fact that they have all these promises. These promises are still there. They're not just because Jesus has come and fulfilled these things doesn't take the promises away. It actually makes them more concrete that you still have these things. You may not go to the temple anymore and worship there, but you still have these promises. They are sure and they're tied to the Lord Jesus and his ministry, just like they always were. So that should be a great comfort to them and, and give them a great amount of peace saying, wow, okay, we have these things. And it's the same thing for us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So we have these things. These things are ours, okay? In verse 12, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, talking about David, I will set up thy seed after thee, right? So um, this is the promise that went that, that there was going to be one that comes through the Davidic line and Jesus fulfilled that. And I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and will establish his kingdom. Okay, so yeah, this descendant of David that's going to establish this kingdom. So yes, Solomon established the kingdom but the kingdom went away the kingdom solomon's kingdom went away many times enemies came in and they took over and destroyed israel they had you know nebuchadnezzar they had uh antiochus epiphanes they had all these people that would come in and just destroy them constantly and right now there's no kingdom they're they're barely a nation you know so this has to speak of something greater than what we have right now. That's the point that the writer in Hebrews is making, that we still have greater things ahead of us. This is not it. Yes, we have wonderful things right now, amazing things, but we have greater things ahead of us. In uh, verse 13, 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's definitely not speaking of Solomon, right? He will build a house. And it says that a body was given to Christ, right? He said a lot of times in scripture, the body is spoken of as a tent or a house or a temple that we've been given, right? And the word for house here refers to a temple, right? And he said, you know, I'll destroy this temple and in three days, raise it again. He was speaking of his body. And here the word for house refers to a temple. And so we have the immediate view of God establishing and having Solomon build a temple. But he says, this is a kingdom and a throne that's going to last forever. So that's definitely speaking of the Lord Jesus, right? So this is a great comfort. This, this, this should have caused the Hebrew believers, just like it causes us right now to get excited, like how amazing God is and how that he has all of this figured out and he's revealed everything that he's going to do before he does it so that we can draw comfort from the fact that he's in control, that we can be stabilized by his word. That's, that's exactly what we need to do. In verse 14, it says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. I mean, that is pretty clear. Here we have the restatement of the fact that this is my son in whom I will please. You know, you're my son. Jesus is my son and I've begotten him. He has come into the realm of man. He is the fulfillment of all things. He is my son. This would have caused great joy for the Hebrew believers to to hear this reference because they were very familiar with it. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, this is where it gets interesting. It says, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Well, we know that the Lord Jesus never committed iniquity. So you might say, well, hey, how does your application apply to that? This is where it fails. But it doesn't because he was given a body and sin was placed upon him. And he bore the full punishment, the full punishment for the sin that was placed upon him. Right. So that it was a significant part of the role of Jesus was to take sin upon himself. And the father had to judge that sin. Even though this is his beloved son, he had to judge sin. The righteousness of God, the holiness of God says that he has to judge sin. And it was our sin. It wasn't Jesus' sin. It was ours that he, that he took the, the punishment for. In verse 15, but, it's, but my mercy shall not depart away from him. See, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. So this is this is an eternal mercy, the eternal mercy, the eternal love, the eternal grace that we receive, that Solomon, that David, that all these Hebrew believers uh, in times past and any believers in the future are going to receive. It's eternal. His mercy shall not depart away. Okay, we have that. Verse 16, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established for, 
forever. So clearly, this is an eternal throne. David died. We, we know where he's buried. Solomon died. There's nobody ruling right now. So clearly there's an application beyond what's the people that are being spoken to directly. And that's what the letter to the Hebrews is doing. It's establishing the fact that this Jesus was prophesied beforehand, that this is the one that, the, that God said that he would send, that he would accomplish his will, and that he would have to, his part of his ministry was taking upon sin upon himself and doing away with it forever. And verse 17, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So if you can continue reading uh, in, in, in 2 Samuel from 18 to 29, it's David's reaction. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in that, but clearly you can see from his reaction, his, the thanksgiving that he gives, that he is awestruck by this. Because he realizes that it's not just Solomon that God is speaking about, but the one that's going to come to establish his kingdom forever. And we know that person as the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrews knew that person as Jesus of Nazareth. And his throne is eternal. What a great comfort. What a awesome way that you know, God has used his word to comfort these Hebrew people and to comfort us. I mean, we should be awestruck how that the more we learn about the word of God and how that God has presented himself throughout the ages, how that the consistency of his presentation, the, the knowledge that he has of all things and how that he comforts us by letting us get a glimpse at his omniscience and that this is all planned out. Nothing surprises him. There's nothing in your life right now that he's shocked by or surprised by. And I can't imagine anything to be more comforting to, than to know that because I'm shocked and surprised by a lot of things all the time. People cut me off on the freeway and I'm shocked and surprised. But God isn't. Nothing moves him. He's settled. He's upon his throne and he's in full control. And if we don't get anything else from this particular lesson, let's get that. That he's in control. That... He cares for you, every detail about you, and he wants you to have the peace of knowing that. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews was very specific in referencing this verse in 2 Samuel, because it's, it's to minister to us, to make us to see that God is in control and that he has everything that we need is in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything. There's not anything on the other side of everything. So we see that um, there's a lot of wonderful things here just in these first, <clears throat> these two verses of four and five of Hebrews chapter one. Now, 
I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to go ahead and pause here because there's a lot more that we need to see about the Lord Jesus and I want to be able to give uh, the proper time and um, study to to these um, subsequent verses but just know that the Lord is in control and that Jesus has everything that you need um, to be uh, fully successful and to grow and prosper in him. He has all those things for you. And he has purposed in your life to accomplish those things. He's not depending on you to do it. He's not depending on me to do it. He's going to accomplish those things in your life. All you have to do is keep your eyes fixed on him. Look to him for everything. Every need you have, you thank him for everything. Whatever it is that comes into your life, thank him for it. Because whatever that detail is, it is working to put you in a place that is before him. You know, he calls us out, brings us to himself, and he successfully brings us complete in him to himself. So one day we will stand before him complete. Well, the process that we're living right now on earth that is our process of being refined. He's getting out all the dross and all the things that are um, unnecessary. And the only thing that's going to be left is going to be precious gold and uh, precious things, uh, things that are that are good and valuable. And uh, we're covered with that. We're kind of like the tabernacle too right now. We're covered with this body. And people look at us and they don't see much because they don't realize that all of the things that are valuable and precious are on the inside. God, the Holy Spirit is inside us, making us what we are to be. And people may not see that on the outside, but that's not important. What's important is, is that you know that God is working in you to make you who and what he wants us to be. And that process is not always comfortable. You know, it requires some effort. It requires some effort on your part. It uh, is going to be accomplished fully by the power of God, but he allows us to participate. How does he allow us to participate in that process? Well, we have his word. What you're doing right now, the fact that you're Studying his word and learning more about him, that's going to make you to grow and it's going to bring you closer to him and make you more like him in your life. So, you know, these are the things that we have and don't, uh, I mean, I want you to be encouraged. Don't ever forget the fact that you have these things and that Jesus is with you. He is with you right now. He is holding you close to him and keeping you safe. And whatever it is that's in your life, it's it's filtered through his love. Don't ever forget that. It's very important that you that you see that. So we'll go ahead and finish up here. We'll close now and we'll take up uh, verse six, uh, starting in verse six when we we come back so that we can give this a proper study. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for your ministry. The ministry that you've had to the nation Israel and how that you've recorded those things for our benefit. And now we can see clearly that these things are for our benefit. Certainly they had a benefit to those who they were spoken to at the time, uh, the prophet Nathan and David. But you made David to see the things that you're making us to see that you were going to establish your kingdom through one that came from him. And now we know him by name, Jesus. And we have him. Thank you so much for giving us your son and for him taking upon himself our sin so that we could be in your presence. What an amazing thing. And we, we exalt you, Father. We exalt him. And we are just inside our spirit just rejoices in the greatness and the goodness the unmerited favor that you've extended to us. We uh, just thank you and praise you for it. Pray that this would be a comfort to your people uh, for all times. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.